All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks very much for coming out to the secret meeting here. <laughs> the one that is not in the paper or on the website or any place else. I don't know how you all found it, but good, good on you. Theoretically, we'll advertise maybe the next one or maybe not. I like you guys. This is perfect. Um, tonight, I want to launch a new series called The Germans. And there's a lot of good reasons for doing this. The main reason for not doing it is Immanuel Kant. So we're going to start. We're going to start with Kant, and then the rest of it's going to be great. No, that's not fair to that's not fair to Kant. Kant is a great thinker, but he's a challenging thinker. Um, but I want to do a, a couple of things here. One, besides go through the series of incredibly important thinkers, you know, Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, you know, Jaspers. We're going to just do a whole range of German philosophers. I'm also sneaking Kierkegaard in, although not officially German. He was in the German philosophical language tradition. Um, is the, exploring the concept of why did the series of remote principalities uh, on the edge there of Europe with a language that very few people spoke, no one outside of those principalities, somehow become the dominant intellectual force in, in, in Europe. If, if you stood in Europe in 1900 and looked around, and you said, who's the most important country intellectually, scientifically, in the humanities? Everyone, oh, everybody, obviously Germany. There's no, there's no question. People from America went to German universities, William James famously, um, many others, because they were the best universities in the world. Uh, if you were looking for the sciences, of course, you have Humboldt, who was sort of the iconic thinker at the time, world, world famous. He sort of set the standard, lived in Paris for a long time, by the way, but still, German thinkers setting the standard. There's Goethe, you know, Beethoven, Brahms, all the, you know, Mahler, uh, you know, the whole German uh, musical tradition, the arts, sciences, literature, philosophy, philology, the early. Uh, pioneers of philology were many German thinkers. But it's weird that for a couple of hundred years, again, relatively fragmented, relatively remote, not particularly wealthy, set of principalities that spoke a language that nobody else spoke, should come to so dominate the intellectual world um, in which they found themselves. And that's one of the things I want to explore as we talk about the thinkers. And the thinker you pretty much sort of have to start with, I would say, or certainly should cover at some point, but I'm going to just start with him, is Immanuel Kant. And he is in a remote east corner of uh, Germany at the time, Prussia, um, in Konigsberg. He, his biography is easy because he was born in Konigsberg. He grew up in Konigsberg. He went to university in Konigsberg. He got a job lecturing at the University in Konigsberg, and then he became a professor of philosophy much later in Konigsberg, and then he died in Konigsberg. So in case you're wondering, just repeat Konigsberg, and you know everything you need to know about uh, Kant. But again, through the, to give you a sense of how much the geography, political geography has changed, this is now uh, Kaliningrad, Kaliningrad, yes, Kaliningrad in Russia. Um, which is not, not, and then you go, it doesn't go Kaliningrad, Russia, then Germany, it goes Kaliningrad, then Poland, and then Germany, right? So this is, so he, it, Konigsberg, now Kaliningrad, Konigsberg was sort of way out there. It's not like centrally located in any stretch of the imagination, although it did have a lot of communications with the outside world, important. 
But Konigsberg is, is his land. This is where he pretty much, I, I forget the, the number of miles. It's like he never went more than 19 miles away from Konigsberg. It's some, it's some remarkably short distance. But pretty much raised in Konigsberg, stayed in Konigsberg, and yet became one of the most important thinkers uh, at the end of the Enlightenment, as you go into um, the modern era. I mean, he really was central. And to try and figure out how this strange, obscure, challenging writer, who basically never left a, a city, not a particularly large city, on the eastern fringe of Germany, should come to dominate European thinking, or at least be hugely influential, is one of the things I try to, to come to grips with. So step one is to understand what's happening in his time. Uh, importantly, Kant comes at the end of the Enlightenment. He's, the Enlightenment has been rolling now for, you know, how, how do you score these things, but say a century, give or take. Um, and the two main threads of the Enlightenment, rationalism, which is the appeal to reason, the human capacity to logic, to use logic and, and to uh, rationate about the nature of the world, which is one huge power and driving force of the Enlightenment, uh, has been running in parallel with empiricism, which says that human experience, those things that you have in the world that you get through your sense perception and your explorations and your experiments and your encounters, allow you to shape an understanding of the world based on your own outlook. <coughs> so your capacity to reason and your experiences make your understanding of the world. And for the first 60, 70 years of the Enlightenment, this seemed like no problem at all. And then much like the collapse of, of, of sort of the Catholic world that happened during the Renaissance, they thought that the problem, that, that mixing the pagan classics of Greek and Rome with the Catholic tradition was no problem at all. And it turned out for a while it wasn't, and then it was, right? And it sort of all exploded. Same thing is happening with the Enlightenment when Kant starts becoming educated and growing up. Um, what's happening is you realize, or the philosophers and thinkers are realizing that rationalism and empiricism nah, may not be best friends after all. Indeed, they may create problems for each other that are virtually insoluble. So to give you an idea, so reasoning, internal human capacity, you can reason about the world, um, given a couple of things. So, so by the way, this is sort of, the, if you would do the classic French rationalist, Descartes, Leibniz, uh, Spinoza, of course. And this is what you need to grasp the universe is reason. You can, with your mind, reason out the world. And, and this is why Descartes says, well, reason is the most important human faculty, and therefore we need a reasonable argument for the existence of God. And it turns out these are really hard to come by. So they worked on that for a long time. Now empiricism says, no, 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 no. You understand Hume, Locke, right, sort of the more the English tradition, although there's a lot of crossover here. Trying to draw sharp lines is, is not, not helpful. But the emphasis on empiricism is, ah, sense perception. What you take in through your senses is how you understand the world. But of course, the rationalists are quick to point out that your senses often mislead you. 
And then the empiricists are often to quick out to show your reason often misleads you. And they mislead you in different ways and create different kinds of problems. So if you look at the classic enlightenment figure of Newton, so Newton ran these experiments often on himself. Um, my favorite one is he took knitting needles, those big knitting needles, and prodded the back of his eye with them. Right now, this seems like madness, uh, and I don't do not do this at home. One of those things that runs across the screen that is these are professional. Newton is a professional nut job. Do not attempt this at home. Um, and what he was trying to do was mess around with his eye. It's a good way to mess around with your eye, because he realized that your eye is your instrument with which you perceive visually the world, and you need to know how that operates if you're going to understand how you're perceiving the world through your sense perceptions. <clears throat> so he had this like curiosity about, but also nervousness about, how well his eyes were functioning and, and how they worked in themselves. At the same time, he comes up with this theory of gravitation and planetary motion and the groundwork of calculus purely out of his reason. A little bit of data, a whole lot of reasoning. In fact, famously, he, gets, he does the calculations of the tides of, of the Earth and tries to work out how they work. And because his little bit of data that he had was inaccurate, his conclusions were totally wrong. Which is, this is the problem with, with the whole rationalist program. If any part of your reasoning or your information is even the littlest bit wrong, of course, your conclusions can be wildly, wildly off track. But everybody looked to Newton and they said, oh, this is so great. He is the model. Look, he, he sort of sat in his room and worked out the universe. But that unity is breaking down. The empiricist line and the rationalist line are diverging. And one other thing is going on is if human reason gives you the truth, which the empiricists are very dubious about, then you don't need gods or kings or rulers. If experimentation experience gives you the truth, you don't need gods or kings or rulers either. So one thing that the Enlightenment does agree about is you don't need all these other bastards telling you what to do or what to think. So it's a big challenge to fundamental authority of all kinds. So it's undermining the truth while getting rid of the authority that can provide the truth. Into this gap steps Immanuel Kant. And he comes up with this plan to solve all of these problems. And in a way he sort of does, he at least addresses them systematically, and I mean systematically, capital system, Wow. Uh, at length, whew, at great, great stultifying length, but in such a way that everybody took something different from his answer. And so one reason he's so important is he really addresses in an incredibly powerful way, great analytical mind, the crucial problems philosophical problems that, that, that people who are thinking about these things, by the way, which is almost no one, uh, but who's thinking about these things, found useful, but what they found useful about it varied dramatically. So it's like he, he, they, almost no one sort of agreed with him per se, but they found things in his thinking that they liked and they ran with it. So he's sort of the father of a thousand thinkers, none of whom basically may or may not have agreed with anything else he said. So it's this, re, it's this real curious mix. Uh, the example I use is it, 
thinkers were sort of in this, you know, walled compound. And they had been pressing the walls and pressing the walls and press, And Kant really came along and said, you know what we're going to do is we're going to tear down the walls and we're going to build new walls. And he thought he had torn down the walls and built new walls. Most everybody else just thought he had torn down the walls. They didn't see the new walls at all. And they said, look, you've ripped all this apart. What do we do now? And he's like, no, no, I built it back. And they're like, we don't see the built back part. So we'll talk about it. It's important to know this is the thing, though. He was trying to take everything down the ground and rebuild new to maintain the old structures, but harmonize rationalism and empiricism with the old sort of overarching structures of truth. He didn't really do it, but he did all kinds of other interesting things in that attempt. So to understand his background and his thinking, again, Konigsberg, out there Eastern Germany, smallish city, but somewhat international trade going on, you know, like getting communication from the outside world. Um, he was from very humble but not impoverished background. The fact that he got an education at all at this time, of course, means you aren't that poor because very few people did. And almost no one went to university. This is one of the things that stands out. Kant is the first generation of European students who could sort of vaguely look to a school and go, oh yeah, that might be something I do. At the time Kant was in the university there in Konigsberg, I, you know, maybe 700 to 1,000 students are in university in all of Germany. You know, it's just this vanishingly tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. But there are small universities cropping up everywhere. By the time he's done with his education, maybe two or 3,000 people, right? So the, definitely the arc is up, and it's been going up ever since. More classes, more universities, more schools, more opportunities. So he's right there at the beginning of this notion that it's good to have universities around. But they're still heavily religious in orientation. That's also just beginning to change. So he was raised in the pietist school, of, of a Lutheranism. So Germany at this time officially Lutheran, although there's many large Catholic po pockets. That's sort of the official religion. Pietism is sort of an offshoot of Lutheranism that's, that wants to emphasize uh, sort of humility, um, sort of care, fastidiousness. Not, it's not about the preacher. It's not about the church. It's about personal behavior, simplicity, directness, honesty, purity. Uh, and so, as you can imagine, the pietist school he went to as a young man was a whole lot of fun, partying all the time. No, it was incredibly boring and repressive, and he did not like it in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so when he left, he was no big fan of Lutheranism in general, or pietism in particular, as a religious concept. However, he had incorporated in his mind and in his behaviors essentially every aspect of pietism. So one of the things that makes him difficult as a thinker is no one could ever decide if he believed in God. He always said he did, but the way he believed in God, as we'll see, was so weird as to seem like he was an atheist. But his personal behavior was so above reproach, so regular, in fact, so perfect, that people thought, well, he must be okay because look how incredibly upstanding as a human being he is, right? It's just, he just lived this sort of perfect, orderly, simple, 
uh, life and, and to a degree that's almost hard to imagine, particularly the older he got. They said you could, he could set your watch by the time that he walked through town. He was so regular when he went on his walks every day. Um, so incredibly orderly person, humble uh, in, in public. He had friends, you know, it was not like he was a, a, an awful hermit or anything, but he was just, he had the pietist tradition sort of in him. And so this created all this, no one could, like I said, even today people aren't sure whether or not he believed in God. And if he did, it doesn't seem like any God that anybody else ever believed in. So it's this, it's this big problem. At one point, by the way, the king told him he could no longer teach religion because they had become so suspicious of him. And he was like, and he couldn't figure, he's like, why? I mean, he clearly did not think this was a problem. He thought he was right there. He was delivering God to the people. But as we'll see, the way he delivered it was not what they thought. So when he starts in his education, he starts studying the natural sciences. He's a mathematician, physics. It's hard for us again to remember that back then, philosophy included everything from geology and mathematics to morals, ethics, theology. It was all sort of one big glom. It's just starting to blow up, in part because of the rationalist versus the empiricist tradition. The empiricists are going to run off with all the physical sciences and go, ha ha, these are ours. The rationalists are going to go, we get math. And the philosophers are stuck with ethics and morals, which is sort of a swamp. And aesthetics, which is at least interesting. Um, so this is, you know, it's all starting to get paired out. Well, he lived right at that juncture, and so he did everything. And I mean everything. If you read through his works, there's hardly a subject that he did not write about incomprehensibly at length. Now, uh, one problem with Kant, I gave this sort of longest quote here to begin with. Um, this is from the Critique of Pure Reason, which is sort of one of his key works. And I give this long quote just so when I complain about his writing style, you know I'm, I'm not just complaining randomly. Uh, so then this is picked almost, you just basically, I just flipped open the Critique of Pure Reason and started typing. So here's a, here's a passage. The understanding was defined above only negatively as a non-sensuous faculty of cognition. Now, independently of sensibility, we cannot possibly have any intuition. Consequently, the understanding is no faculty of intuition. But besides intuition, there is no other mode of cognition except through conceptions. Consequently, the cognition of every, at least of every human, understanding is a cognition through conceptions, not intuitive, but discursive. All intuitions, as sensuous, depend on affectations. Conceptions, therefore, upon functions. By the word function, understand the unity act of arranging diverse representations under one common representation. Conceptions, then, are based on the spontaneity of thought. As sensuous intuitions are on respectively of impressions. Now, the understanding um, cannot make any other of use of these conceptions than to judge by means of them. As no representation, except as intuition, relates immediately to its object, conception never relates immediately to an object, but only to some other representation thereof, be that an intuition or an in self a conception. A judgment, therefore, is immediate cognition of an object, consequently the representation of a representation of it. <laughs> and it goes on like this for hundreds of pages. And so you're like, what are you talking about? Could you please? In fact, trying to look for a quote to put in this from Kant is so frustrating because he, ne he just doesn't stop discursing like this. Um, and so, but this is really how he thought. And he was trying to think very clearly and very subtly. And so his writing reflects that. Um, and he didn't really seem to care about the reader. Uh, he's in the tradition of Aristotle, I would say. So Plato writes these lovely dialogues, and there's all these conversations, and there's jokes, and Aristotle, not so many jokes. 
Um, again, same thing here with, with Kant. He's in the Aristotelian tradition of just reason it out, don't care about the audience. And so it's difficult, but worthwhile. Because what he's trying to do in the critique of pure reason is an extraordinary thing. Rationalists over here, empiricists over here, how can we get them together? And how can we rescue God while doing this, whom the rationalists nor the empiricists had any particular love of? And so he comes up with this plan, which is key to pretty much all of his thinking uh, on, on these subjects related to morals, ethics, aesthetics, and questions of theology. And he says, here's the deal. Your sense perceptions provide you input, which you then think about, your cognition. But you can only think in the way that your mind is constructed. That's what it means to have a mind. It will order the world the way your mind is. So we don't see radio waves. They're invisible to us. So radio waves don't exist, essentially. And he says, everything in the world is that way. We're not seeing the world as it is, even remotely. We're seeing the world as our senses are translated by our cognition to create something that we can understand by the way our brains are structured. Now, this is a radical claim. Other people have sort of edged up to this. Hume talks about this. Hume, hugely influential on Kant. But Kant just runs with it. And he says, look, you don't have access actually to the world. Because everything you take in as sensory input has to be perceived by your perceiving thing, your mind. And that is structured somehow. And whatever the mind is structured, that's what you'll perceive. And however it's not structured, you won't perceive it. So he believed in the unthinkable thought. There are thoughts that are so hard that you, and so outside the human experience that they just can't be thought. They're not accessible to us. So he says, for instance, time, this is an actual example from Kant, may not exist. It may just be that our minds are ordered in such a way that we have to perceive things as having a cause, and an effect, and then a cause and effect in this chain sequence of time. That may not be true at all. It just may be a, a, an artifact of our perceptual apparatus and our cognition of it. And so he called this cognition a priori structures of the mind. He says all this stuff is built into us when we're born. Nothing we can do about it. That's how we see the world. And so our experience of the world is really, really tangential at best, completely unrelated to the universe at worst. And sense perception is not to be trusted, not in the sense that it's giving us incorrect. This is generally the critique of sense perception, is, oh, there's been some trick of the light. Or it's like when you look down the train tracks, always the example I like, and they join in the distance. Intellectually, we know they don't join in the distance, but our minds tell us they do. So that is a, a failure of sense perception. He says, no, that's fine. It's not that your sense perceptions mislead you, which is sort of many empiricists had noticed this, right? Common idea. It's that that's all you ever get. There is no unmisleading sense perception. 
There is no moment when your sense perception should be considered reliable as truth. And so you go, wow, that sounds like radical skepticism. And a lot of people who read this thought, wow, that is radical skepticism. And by the way, say a lot of people who read this, which is like 12 people. But you know, notice, not a, not a European-wide bestseller. Uh, but slowly, his, his influence grew and grew. Again, we'll talk about it in a second. So then how do you rescue God? So one of the things he did in the Critique of Pure Reason is show... One, our sense perceptions aren't that worthwhile. In fact, they're worthless, more or less. Not that they're wrong, they're just, this is how they function. They function as an unreliable source, so don't worry about that. Um, two, reason. All you're doing when you reason is you're doing cognition with this machine that cognates in a, that, that thinks in a certain way. And so you don't want to trust reason. It's a limited by the actual human capacity which is maybe totally useless and divorced from the world. Hence, critique of pure reason. So one of the things he says is there's no way to reason your way to God. It's impossible. And he demonstrates this pretty clearly. Now, a lot of people would say there's no way to reason your way to God. Sounds like a, an attack on a belief in God. For instance, the rationalists thought this. But he said, there's no way to reason your way out of God either. This is a subject which is not accessible by reason. Now, this in itself was a huge blow to the rationalist idea. For him to try to draw barriers around reason, the human capacity to think and say, you know what? There are things you will never be able to reason. Ipso facto, reason, rationalism, that whole like program is probably not going to work out the way people had hoped. So while he thought he was unifying rationalism and empiricism, a lot of people read this as a damning critique of rationalism. And, and this is not far off, right? I mean, so it's not crazy to think that. And while he thought he was bringing empiricism and rationalism together, a lot of people read the whole notion that all sense experience is necessarily untrustworthy and misleading. It just, it's just how it functions. It's not untrustworthy. It's just not that connected to the outside world as a damning critique of empiricism. And then finally, he thought he was bringing this all into the theological umbrella of God, but he came with such a bizarre notion of God that everybody thought that he had just proven God didn't exist. And so it's this really weird, like he thought he was doing one thing. Lots of other people were like, no, that looks like something totally different. So where's God in all of this? So we know sense perception is, you know, totally basically disconnected from the world. Reason, ooh, don't trust that because it's just a sort of byproduct of the structure of our minds. Helpful, interesting, but not at the end of days going to solve a lot for us. He said, ah, so God is a thing. If he's anything, God is a thing, and we have no access to things as they actually are. We just posit that things exist. And so God is one of those things that you posit that exists because it seems useful, likely, and morally necessary. Voila, God. And people did not find this as a great idea of God. <laughs> They're like, what are you talking about? But Kant makes the very good observation. 
If God is an omnipotent, universe-creating, infinite being that is timeless, you can't think that. The notion that you can think that is simply so clearly flawed that you need to abandon that. And so you need an unthinkable God to which you have no access if you're going to believe in anything that's reasonable. So there you go, religion saved. <laughs> People did not find this a warm, cuddly kind of God. They found it as a, like not that helpful. You can see why they made him stop teaching theology, right? He's like, but why? Why are you making me stop teaching? Really, I mean, he really was upset by this because he's like, I'm doing this great job. Look what a great job I'm doing. And they're like, no, no, we don't read this as that great of a job. We're sort of like a God you can pray to. He's like, you can't pray. Actually, it's, you, there's, you can't pray to God. But you think you could communicate with an infinite being that's all space and time outside of any possibility you can have a cognition of? That's just stupid. So stop that. <laughs> Praying stuff. So this is one of the arguments that made him suspect the religious authorities. Um, but to him, it just seemed perfectly reasonable. Clearly, the ends of reason, he reasoned his way to the end of reasoning. And he was happy to just draw the line there and say, we can't reason beyond that, so let's knock yourself out. Um, and so he came up with all these sort of interesting, complex, and unhelpful ideas. Uh, and, 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 and like I said, so the empiricist uses arguments against rationalism to attack the rationalist. The rationalist uses arguments against empiricism to attack the empiricist. People who didn't like God use its critique of God. To have people who are interested in faith, by the way, love to use Kant's argument against reason proving God and go, ha look, Kant demonstrated the necessity of faith. Kant had absolutely no use for faith. He did not believe in faith at all. He thought faith was ridiculous. He thought that clearly that there's this rational moral imperative that there is a God. You don't have faith. You just can't reason your way to it. But so everybody likes like a third of his arguments, right? Whoever you stand, you want one third of Kant's arguments. You don't want the other two thirds because it's just too confusing and long and baffling. But one of the things that this leads him to is if you've heard of anything of Kant, it's probably the categorical imperative. Uh, and this is one of those ideas, by the way, that's picked up very heavily by the existentialists. Oh, I should mention, if, if you know anything about Heidegger, you've probably heard of Das Dinge, the thing, the thing itself. This is straight from Kant. This is Heidegger taking this concept that there's things in the world to which you have no access. Das Dinge, you really can't reach them. Central to Heidegger's thinking, for instance. So again, another huge influence of Kant. Categorical imperative picked up heavily by the existentialists. And it's sort of this idea. Categorical imperative is uh, an objective, rationally necessary, and unconditional principle that we must always follow despite any natural desires or inclinations we may have to the contrary. All specific moral requirements, according to Kant, are justified by this principle, which means that all immoral actions are irrational because they violate the categorical imperative. The idea is Whatever is morally right is something that is rationally necessary regardless of what you feel, believe, or desire. It has to be universally true for everyone under all circumstances. So it's not about what you want or need. Sometimes people compare this to the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. This is incorrect because that has as you would have them do unto you nothing to do, totally impersonal. It's a moral imperative that has to be true for everyone 
at all times, regardless of whether you want them to or not. So if there's some categorical imperative that required everyone to punch you, Kant would say, yes, I have to be punched. I don't want to be punched, but that's not what mor morals are not about what I want or what I don't want. They're about what is necessarily true for everyone. And so uh, one of the notions that he has here is he says, well, this gives you the idea of human freedom. We want people to have freedom everywhere at all times. He did not think you could demonstrate that freedom existed, but you also couldn't demonstrate that freedom did not exist. But he thought as a categorical imperative, as a moral theory, we should impute that everyone has freedom. Freedom to act, freedom to think, and so he just felt that the proof of this was that it was morally necessary. Because if people have no freedom, then people, there's no morals. There's no, that they can't exist because we're just automatons. And this is one of the things that people are beginning to worry about because the, the scientists are starting to prove that, oh, cause effect, cause effect, cause effect. If we have a close enough understanding of everything, perhaps we can prove that everything is just a series of mechanical causes and effects. This is just starting to creep into the philosophical notion that this might be what's going on. Now, of course, this is a common concept, that maybe we don't have freedom, we're just a bunch of chemicals or hormones or training or something that we just respond to external stimuli and we're just machines, basically, programmed and operating. Kant said we can't demonstrate that that's not so, but we also can't demonstrate that it is so. So we have a moral imperative to act and believe that everyone has freedom. That's a universal truth. We have to, be, even if we don't want freedom, it's not about you wanting freedom. Even if you don't want other people to have freedom, it's not about you wanting other people to have freedom. It's just necessary to think that everyone does. So it's a very powerful, interesting argument, but it also takes away a lot of human volition. It's interesting, his argument for freedom is that you have to have it whether you want it or not, because it's necessary. And so ultimate freedom consists in doing whatever is necessary, whether you want to or not, which often doesn't sound all that free. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's problematic, but it's a, a very core concept. And the, one of the outgrowths of the categorical imperative is essentially the foundations of all modern human rights. Because he said, well, you impute all humans have freedom and they can reason. And if all humans have freedom and can reason, then all humans should be treated that way. You don't distinguish between the ones that you like and the ones you don't like. You have to impute it to all of them, even if you can't prove it's true. You have to act as if you think it's true. And again, this is essentially the argument that has come to ground the whole modern notion of human rights. It comes right from Kant. I mean, this is a direct line. It's not a confusing, difficult to track out. I mean, his Argument's very subtle and difficult, but once you kind of get your mind around it, you go, oh. So people say, oh, what about this exception? What about that? What about those people? Kant's like, no, categorical imperative has to be true for everyone 
all times, all places. Even if you can't prove it, you have to act as if it's true. So it sort of has this weird giving on one hand and taking away on the other. Um, and so he says this is from the metaphysics of virtue. He says, human free freedom is realized in the adoption of humanity as an end in itself. For the one thing that no one can be compelled to do by another is to adopt a particular end. So he says the end you have to adopt is a belief in humanity and human freedom. Then no one can force people to adopt any other end. They can adopt other ends, but it's through freedom. So it's one of those chicken and egg problems, right? So, it's, so it's, she says, look, if we can all adopt the notion that humanity is an end in itself, and that freedom exists for everybody, then everybody's free to choose what they will, as long as they've got that first choice. It's a problem, right? Logical, it's always in this like, ah, logically tricky place. Just give me a belief in human freedom and we're good to go. And the importance of the rest of humanity. Um, and one of the things that trips us up, even in the modern world, is when people just say, no, we deny humanity to those people. Those people we can kill, we can shoot, we can jail, we can deprive them of rights. And you go, but wait, no, if we want to argue that you can't do that, it, it, it's, it's a big struggle, right? This is, this is one of the core struggles of the modern world, is are there people who get to deprive of their humanity? It's, 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 a, it's a, you know, because we say no, and then culturally we tend to say yes, and then, you know, in actions we say words no, actions yes, right? And it's this huge core. And since Kant's time, this is what's been argued out, right? Who does not have humanity and under what circumstances? Who does not have freedom or shouldn't have it? But again, one of the big problems is if you have a group of people who say, we do not accept the humanity of everyone, then notice you're arguing on different lines, right? Kant's argument doesn't hold when people don't hold the fundamental part of it. When people use their freedom of thought to say, no, those people don't have humanity, Kant says, well, you've violated the categorical imperative, so you can't do that. But of course, we're perfectly happy to do that. And so he just laid out the grounds that we're arguing about right now today, and has been arguing about since his time. It's important to remember, before the Enlightenment or during the Enlightenment, this was not even a question. The whole legal structure of Europe and the rest of the world was built on the fact that these people count and 90% of the other people don't. These people have some legal rights, those people have no legal rights, those people are slaves, these people have rights in the city, they don't have rights. The notion that everyone was equal rights or had equal capacity of human freedom was considered absurd, and no one believed it. Kant's notion, like, no, we should at least extend the concept to everybody, is incredibly radical. And again, if you're a king, this is not a good idea. So Kant develops this in a way that, again, only Kant could do, he takes this radical concept of human value and freedom and says you are most free when you do what you're told. That's the highest pinnacle of human freedom. And it, you're like, what? Wait a second, right? So again, with one hand Kant giveth, with another hand he takes away, and then he's got some other hands that he just confuses everything with. Uh, 
but, but he, the idea he says here is, ah, the only use of human freedom really is to engage in some system. And the act of engaging in a system, a community, a nation, a country, is to give over your humanity and your freedom to that community. To, to be absorbed in it, to be a model citizen, which he was, or at least he thought he was, within that system. And so again, it's this bizarro Kantian world where he goes, oh, human freedom, the foundations of just everything that sort of modern civil rights and the, and, the, and the human rights movement in the world comes right out of this concept. And the first thing you want to do is give it over to the Prussian king. So this is why the authorities never knew what to do with him. He wasn't a bomb-throwing radical. He wasn't writing screeds in the press to get rid of the king. He was writing, all humans are equal and valuable and have freedom and rationalism, and they should all submit to the king. And the king didn't know what to do with that, right? The king's like, I like this part of it. I don't like that part of it. Again, this is why they finally just said, okay, no more teaching theology for you. We're not so concerned about your political writings because no one's reading your political writings because you were such a bad writer. Um, and, and yeah, so it's this difficult thing to unknot in Kant. But there's a lot there for everybody. So since Kant's time, people who believe in subordinating the individual to not necessarily totalitarian systems, but certainly large, uh, what we would think of as repressive systems, can point to Kant and say, look, he makes clear arguments for why it's rationally and morally necessary for you to do this, to achieve human freedom. And then people are like, no, 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 human rights, human civilizations, freedoms, don't do that. And people pick both parts. Kant thought he had unified them human freedom within the Prussian state, theological belief within the empirical rationalist enlightened tradition. He thought he was, or he was not, but he thought he was. And so again, everybody was confused all the time. Um, another example of this is, um, this is from empirical knowledge, that all our knowledge begins with experience, there can be no doubt. Empiricism, right? For how is it possible that the faculty of cognition should be awakened into exercise other than by means of objects, objects which affect our senses? Partly themselves produced representations, partly rouse our powers of understanding, activity to compare and connect those separate objects. But though all of our knowledge begins with experience, by no means follows that all arises out of experience. For on the contrary, it is quite possible that our empirical knowledge is a compound of that which we th receive through impressions and that which the faculty of cognition supplies from itself. It is therefore a question which requires close investigation, is not to be answered at first sight. Whether there exists a knowledge altogether independent of experience, and even of all sensuous impressions, knowledge of this kind is called a priori. It is a contradistinction to empirical knowledge, which has its source a posteriori, that is, in experience. So there it is just laid out as clearly as possible. With a run-on, sir. With, oh, yeah, again, Kant, by the way, Kant is better in translation. His German, really, one of, the, one of the bad things about Kant is he ruined German philosophical writing for a hundred plus years. Because he was so influential and so successful, people thought, oh, well, you should model your writing on Kant. No, you should not model your writing on Kant. No. I mean, it was him, so that's fair for him. But nobody else should write like this. Uh, it's ungrammatical in German. 
it, it, it's unfollowable, essentially. There, there was a, a, a one writer responding to Kant. He says, I don't like to read Kant because I run out of fingers, because you're trying to go, okay, this point, and then this point, and this point, and this point, and this point, but you, before you run out of the sentence, right? I'm trying to hold 10 things in my mind, and I still haven't hit a period. Um, and German is more given to this than English, but still, it's, it's, it's an abuse of the German language, for sure. And so when he's translated, he's clear because it forces translators uh, to sort of clarify things that really aren't clear. And it's actually, uh, many of his passages are ungrammatical in German. So it's not, you know, he, he really was not writing uh, clearly, as it were. Um, but the idea here is, a priori, do we know things outside of experience? Kant said yes. Yes, we know things that are just necessarily structured into our minds. So if you're at all a notion of uh, evolutionary psychology, this is sort of think the field of evolutionary psychology. We have evolved structures and ways of thinking that are bio. He didn't think of it as evolutionary, of course. He's before evolution. But this is the idea. The nature of our existence requires us to think certain ways and things regardless of our experience. It doesn't matter what you experience. That's already in there. It's pre-programmed, as you will, biologically necessary. And so you're going to respond to the world in certain ways. Even if you get certain sense impressions, that could be remade into something totally different because you have, again, a priori knowledge, things that you know or ways of knowing prior to getting any sort of input. And so, again, it just creates all kinds of madness. But evolutionary psychology makes precisely this argument. Again, several hundred years later, evolutionary psychology is saying our minds have evolved in particular ways with particular capacities and particular activities. So my favorite example of this is um, people know the slot machines? Slot machines, yes. So slot machines have become very sophisticated with now they're digital sort of video game-like slot machines with buttons and lights. And what they've discovered is that if you lose a dollar and lose a dollar and lose a dollar and lose a dollar, you do not remember this. And then you win four dollars, oh, you remember that. And then you lose a dollar, 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 win three dollars, you remember that. Lose a dollar, lose a dollar, do lose a dollar, lose a dollar, lose a dollar, win two dollars. The only thing you remember out of that is I won three, I won four, and I won two. And so they interview people. Of course, the gambling industry has studied this very closely. And they find out that you ask people after, they, how do you do? And they'll say, oh, I won two, four, three. I won $9. That's great. They don't remember losing $21 bills. They, they literally don't remember it. It's not in their minds. And the evolutionary psychologist has speculated that this may be a product of hunting and gathering. If you go out to find food, you don't want to remember all the berries that weren't ripe. This is not, it's, it's too much, right? There's going to be so much that's not edible and not ripe that to remember all that would be impossible. Ah, but if you do find an apple that's ripe or a berry that's ripe, or that really, your mind goes, boom, spike, remember that. That worked, that's food. And so when they study people's minds, it's like flatline, 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 boop, spike. We also remember very big painful losses. 
So if a loss is too large, it triggers the exact opposite spike, except for now it's negative. And so if I give you tiny losses, tiny, 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 we don't notice it. I mean, like I said, when they do the studies of people, they actually, if you, they don't remember it at all. It does not, it's not there. But if you said you lost five dollars, they'd be like, "Holy crap, I lost five dollars!" And you won five dollars, they would remember both of that, or whatever the thresholds are for our thinking. And so all of these games are carefully calibrated to this cognition that's built into us, that structures the way we actually experience the world, not how the world is. Kant was one of the first people, and one of the people to run this all absolutely to its limit, who said, "Yeah, this is the way we are." There's a priori things just in us. If you've heard the blank slate argument, tabula rasa, this is the other side, except this is the other side gone all the way. So it's not that we can't learn and respond, it's just that he doesn't say that, but he just says, you know, a priori stuff is in there. And so, again, in, in human rights, Ethics, aesthetics, I would love to go into aesthetics. You know, these crazy ideas in aesthetics. Uh, you know, politics, uh, notions of theology, limits of empiricism, uh, limits of rationalism. He's just on and on and on. He taught so much. He wrote so much on virtually every subject. He's like an encyclopedia of philosophical argument. Um, and so his influences come down to us in, the, in these specific ways, but in, in more generally in a couple of, of modes. One, he set the model of the philosophy professor. Yeah. Do, do, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine this, but really he was so influential that people said, well, that's what, you, that's what a philosophy professor is. And so people modeled themselves, knowing like Hegel, as we'll talk about next, uh, modeled himself on Kant, and since then he is the popular image of the, the philosophy professor. And, and almost no philosophy professor has been like him since then. Sartre wasn't like him at all. But if you ask people how was Sartre, they go, oh, he's probably like this. And they imagine Immanuel Kant. It's, it's, it's unextraordinary, his influence as a model, sometimes negative, sometimes positive. All to the negative was his nature of writing. People really did, because if you read the Greek and Roman philosophical writings, and you read the Renaissance philosophical writings, Montaigne, you know, uh, uh, these sorts of people, they're very lively, they're uh, conversational, they're uh, interesting, they have narratives, they go on tangents. Kant tried to be scientific. It's important to remember, again, I mentioned he started in natural science, he started in mathematics, and works his way in. He always wanted to maintain that sense of rigor, even if it was artificial. He wanted to maintain it and to appear as if he was being, quote unquote, well, empiristic, but, but being totally rational at every step. To the point where today, you know, you look at all the, the, the varying psych, uh, philosophical fields, they all have this desire to present their arguments as if. They're Immanuel Kant, very orderly, all your evidence in a row, no discursive conversations. He essentially set the standard for academic writing, which for which he owes many apologies. Um, you know, but, but if you've ever wondered why is it so dry, why is it so boring, why can't it be like the Phaedrus, why can't it be like the Symposium? Uh, well, blame Kant. There's no reason it can't be, but this sort of taking on the robes of artificial uh, exactness 
It sort of made sense in Kant's time because, again, all the fields were one. But he, again, he just laid down this pattern, and because everybody was going to German universities, because German universities are the model, and because many of the people writing and working at German universities were looking at Kant, he influenced the whole Western world. Chinese thinkers didn't write like this. Indian thinkers certainly did not write like this. Uh, but boy, the, 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 the Western intellectual tradition was so influenced by his model that they thought, oh yeah, this is what we have to do. In fact, this is one reason like Descartes is sometimes held up as a model. The French sort of fight against this tradition. They sort of love it and fight against it back and forth. One um, reason people know the Jacques Derrida, people are always confused. Well, what is this stuff that he's doing? Well, one of the things he's doing is he's writing against Immanuel Kant. They're saying, well, he doesn't write the way academics are supposed to. And he's like, yeah, he knows that. He's just not convinced that academics should have ever written that way. You may not like the way he writes, that's perfectly reasonable, but it'd be clear that what he's doing is he's saying, I don't think we should write like that guy you know, in 1765. That was not a good way to go, and we've gone way too far down that track. So there's this you know, big debate, but basically he won the argument by modeling. Um, and so his influence even on this other deeper level, has been just immense. In fact, almost so, so large it's hard to track out. And so what Kant has done for us then is he's launched us into the new world. In fact, some historians of philosophy we say you just draw a line at Immanuel Kant. That, that when Kant comes out, he so launches this new set of thinking that it basically becomes the model for philosophy that we more or less still hold to for, again, good and ill. No one else has been sort of been able to tear it down sufficiently. Again, when we talk about Nietzsche, this one thing he was trying to do is not write within that tradition. It didn't work for him. You know, you leave that tradition, you've left the, you've left the academy. You can't do it anymore. And so right there at the inception, the Western intellectual tradition, uh, the university starting to kick off, the split between empiricism, theology, the king, uh, rationalism, all of the things we're struggling with, legal grounding for human rights, aesthetics, the history of ideas, how does the human mind work, how do we perceive the world, all these questions that seem so central to us today, Kant was trying to cobble together into a coherent single system based on human reason. That he failed is not that surprising, but his failure has been unbelievably generative of ideas that people have been running off with and filtering for, again, the last 300 years, whether they know it or not. Often people don't know that this is where it came from. And then to go back to where we started from, why is Germany so influential? One reason is Immanuel Kant. Just point to him and go, he became the model of what an academic is. Because universities were just starting up. Now, what a professor is supposed to be like? Well, he's successful. He published a lot. He was respectable. So we should be like that. Forget these Greek guys going to drink, right? And forget them wandering around the forum. Forget, you know, the, the, working with the emperor. That's not what you do, right? You're in your office. You think. It's in your mind. And you write. You don't run experiments. Right? This is, this is, this is, really, he did set that model because universities are starting to grow. He got a chair of, of philosophy of which there were like four in Germany at the time. 
and then again everybody going to Germany to study then exports that model, the German education model, which is crazy, but true. And so one reason the German uh, language and culture of this time was so influential throughout the Western world is simply because of this model that was derived not just from the thinking of Kant, but from the person of Kant. Not Hume, by the way, who just sort of was this sort of lovable, every affable, friendly, screed-writing guy who wrote bestsellers, hung out in coffee shops, and liked his friends. But he was, didn't have a job. He didn't, you know, Hume was not working at the university. You know, he's not a model. Newton's a bit hard to take as a model because Newton is nuts. It's always important to remember Newton just nuts. Wow, that guy. Everybody said Newton, great, brilliant, genius thinker, but didn't eat for days. You know, forgot to show up for anything. You know, sort of sticking needles in his eyes, right? You know, we're all like, what is he doing? We don't want to stop, don't. Newton's not a great, I mean, people admired him, but yeah, we don't know about that. But nah, Kant, there he is, hate to say it, but it's true. So both intellectually, whether we know it or not, but also personally, he laid down patterns that still to this day, how you write in academia, how you're supposed to live as a professor, what a professor's life is supposed to look like, um, what kind of arguments are allowed to be made, what are the limits of rationalism, what are the limits of empiricism, what are some good arguments for the existence of God, what are some bad ones. Kant, 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 Kant. It's just extraordinary how much he turns up everywhere, again, even when we don't know it. But the one thing I, I would ask you to listen to, if you want to hear the echoes of Kant, is anytime people talk about human rights, anytime they talk about this universal rights of mankind, this, this, this is just pure Immanuel Kant. This is categorical imperative, but extracted, as always, from the environment that Kant wrote it in, because when you try to read where he wrote it, it'll take you a year to figure out this is what he meant. <laughs> but some people did, and, and, and they've taken it away. Um, so that's Immanuel Kant. And next time, part of the influence of Kant is because one of the next most influential philosophers is Hegel, for very different reasons, but he is responding continuously in his work to the model that Kant provided. So the last sort of thing for, for Kant is the next guy is Hegel. So Immanuel Kant, thank you very much. Thank you.